Hey there, welcome to the show. This is Beyond Synth Season 12. That is right, the 12th season of this show. It's been going since 2013. I'm Andy Last. I host the show and I have fun conversations with artists and musicians and cool people from in and around the synthwave scene. And today I'm going to be chatting with Lifelike. And I assume most people who are big into the synthwave scene know who Lifelike is. He's, of course, a cool guy who is producing music in in the early 2000s, like House and New Disco became part of the French Touch kind of family, and there's a lot of artists in the synthwave scene who cited music like his as their inspiration for synthwave, so it was really cool to get to talk to him, and we'll get to that in just a second. For those of you who are fans and supporters of the show, I know at the end of last season I sort of said I was going to be stripping things back for this season, and so this season of Beyond Synth, I am dubbing the No Frills, No Gimmicks season. You know, we were doing all these wacky sound effects and sound drops and fake commercials and all these things and ultimately a lot of those elements just sort of hold up production of an episode there were many occasions last season where an episode ended up being like five or six days late because I was just stuck on the production of the fake commercial part and meanwhile I'm sure there was a good chunk of the audience that was like what is this stuff they're just here for the cool chats and the cool music and so that's what this season is going to be all about we're still going to be doing power hour episodes with Marco and there will be another thing we are just working on at the moment so like I said, Beyond Synth is supported by the awesome listeners on Patreon and some on PayPal, which is at patreon.com slash beyondsynth, and I would just like to give a very warm thank you, happy new year to my awesome members in the Knights of Synth tier, which is probably going to change. I haven't updated the Patreon yet for this year, but I'm going to, so I would just like to say thank you to Brandon Decker, Mike Erdahl, Mike Shima, Timothy Carlton, and Tiber83. You guys are amazing. We'll do a random shout out to some of my $25 pals like Alex Seligson and Emil and Randy and Tron Javolta. A random $10 club shout out to Gary Heather and Boris in the Donation of the Beast Club. And how about a quick thanks to Chris Roberts? How about that? And a shout out to Stagger. You're a cool guy, Stagger. Alright, and that's all I gotta say for now. So let's go chat with Lifelike. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I'm here right now with Lifelike, a.k.a. Laurent. Is that correct? Yes, it's very correct. Perfect. Because <laughs> whenever I look up your name, it says Laurent Ash. Yeah. But this is an alias? This is my alias, yes. Okay. Yes. My real name is hidden for security reasons yeah. on the internet. <laughs> The FBI advised me to not give my real name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why Ash? Is this like an Evil Dead thing or Pokemon or no, what? No, 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 no. It's just because my family name starts with an H. But now you know too much. You might <laughs> have a car crash. Oh! I get it, because you're French, so it's Ash for H. Uh, ah. Yes, exactly. Okay, good. All right, I get it this, now. This is where it goes. This is an interesting thing, because obviously you are a guy who's been making music for a very long time, yeah, and that's right. a lot of artists in the synthwave scene will cite artists like yourself mm-hmm. as being sort of these people who are at the beginning who made music that sort of 
led to and inspired the synthwave scene. Mm -hmm. What did you consider like the genre of music you were making? Oh, at that time, I think we were doing house music simply because one of the first record I released under the alias Lifelike was really like a classic house track. You know, this type of track where you had a funky element sample in the back and a bass line and a black male singer mm. vocals. The EP was named uh, Soul of My Love. And that's the first thing I, I released under this name. And this was like right at the start of the 2000s, right? Uh, yeah, I released two other projects in the late 90s that were also house and 80s oriented under the alias of Ferris Bueller, like <laughs> the movie character. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But it was so early at that time to do that kind of 80s stuff that even the record label was looking at me and saying, this is never going to work. <laughs> That's what they said back in the days. They said, this is like too retro. It wasn't the sound. Right? It wasn't the sound that they wanted to have at that time. Were you always doing like electronic music then? Or were you doing other things before you got into the synth more or less yeah i've been playing keyboards in in bands when i was like in uh, college and then later in university i started to use a computer with the synths because everything was played live and when you're in a, some kind of uh, alternative rock band it was like some kind of we were trying to put some keyboards a friend of mine basically asked me oh you 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 have a keyboard right do you want to play with us <laughs> so i said yes and i was already trying to do some stuff with computers but it was like uh, very mysterious because all the software i didn't understand all the software how it was working you know back in the days when you had no tutorial you had no youtube you had nobody to you could look up to unless you would uh, self-learn and, and be an autodidact and, and find out how it works so I started with uh, playing in, in rock bands. And then within the band that I was playing, of course, this band never became famous. But we had like rehearsal. We made some live music. And I also could play bass. I play a little bit of bass. Uh, I play keyboard, bass, guitar, very little. But I know how to play guitar. And that's the way I learned to play uh, in uh, time. And also to arrange music, because when you have a band, you have to say, okay, and we play two times the verse and one time the chorus, then we go to the bridge, then blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And that's how I started basically in the, in the music. But that's very far then from being in the music industry. That's also a couple of years later. So these bands that you were in, like, did they ever record anything or were they just for live performance? Uh, <laughs> no, the story is that the band, the band we had set up with this friend, we were always drinking so much. Mm. Then one night we had this very big concert where we were trying to set up at the re rehearsal room, like all the people from the college were there and, and my friend drank so much he was playing guitar he fell from his chair when he was playing guitar so th this was basically the end of our project <laughs> because because <laughs> you cannot work with people when they are too much into alcohol you know they're like yeah. their head is going everywhere so i thought okay maybe i stop playing with bands and then next month another friend asked me to play in another band so I was very kind with him I said okay I play with you but I don't think it's so fun to play with bands because playing in a band is quite weird mm. to be honest when I think about it now because yeah everybody plays this part and you have to be in sync yeah. although today everything is in sync and a computer you don't even have to think about someone playing like wrong yeah. and I remember that I tried to convince them that we have to use the sequencer of the, the keyboard I had like a roll on keyboard and I said I have a drum machine in there why don't you just dub 
with the drums this part and why don't you try and play with the keyboard and stuff and they didn't like that you know yeah. <laughs> it was a time where where the electronic stuff they were looking at you and they were thinking okay this music is like interesting but it's not this is not real music, you know, <laughs> that kind of mentality. Yeah, that attitude. I remember I, I went to school with some people like that mm-hmm. and I never understood that attitude because my whole life I've always loved just electronic sounds mm-hmm. and just the amount of sounds you can create. You know what I mean? Like it's so wild. Yeah, yeah And yeah. then when people would act as though electronic music wasn't real and i'm like well your guitar is plugged in you know like metal is real music or whatever and it's like well you're still plugging it in you still need electricity or else this thing doesn't make sound yes yes. and to me there wasn't there wasn't much of a distinction in my head i'm like Mm -hmm. if a thing makes a sound it's music you know like yeah 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 but at the time where i started it's like the late 80s so uh, even if the in the late 80s we're looking at it now thinking that it was like a super high-tech period it was definitely not a super high-tech period if no. you compare to today. <laughs> and, uh, uh, someone who had a computer, like I had a computer, uh, another friend, we were like t- two or three persons who have a computer in the area where I was living. Mm-hmm. So we gathered because of that and we became friends because of that. But it's so far from today where if you don't have a computer, you're a loser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in the days, you would have a computer that would tell you, but why? Wh- what are you doing with it? <laughs> what can you do with this? Well, you can play Wolfenstein. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, I don't even think that Wolfenstein was existing at that time. But <laughs> oh, that's true. What year was that? Because we had a computer, but yeah, there was. It was all those old games where you had to type sentences, like Police Quest mm-hmm. and Space Quest and stuff. Oh, that's already a very advanced game in <laughs> compared to what I what I had. <laughs> Yeah, everything was in 2D, everything was flat, Yeah, and uh, you had to imagine that it was in 3D in your head. So it was like 3D was like the dream, the game you would dream about, like, oh my God, everything in 3D. This you would, <laughs> you can only see in theater, in movie like Tron or something like that, you know? Although there is something to be said for your own imagination. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. The amount of work we had to do in our own heads <laughs> when we were young with the video games and stuff, but exactly. in a way it sort of made them special. Yeah, it makes a special uh, period because you lived it, because you were young. I'm I'm not really sure that if sometimes when I talk to friends of mine who are older, who had like a career in the music industry, like in the 70s and the 80s, when you talk to them about the 80s, they're like, well, okay. (laughs) If you ask them about technical stuff, they said, oh, this we had to sing the drum machine on the tape and then the bass player had to play this and blah, blah, blah. For them, it's not so interesting. It's more for us Mm. or for people born after because they have this complete obsession about 80s stuff. Because the music hasn't changed since then, somehow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, look, speaking of music, let's listen to a song. Mm -hmm. I just picked a bunch because you you got so many great ones and I know you're also... Thank you. I mean, a lot of people really love your remixes and stuff like that where you Mm -hmm. sort of turn tracks into like nice sort of club dancey kind of songs yeah although i've mostly picked just actual lifelike tracks Mm -hmm. because there's so many to choose from because i'm just going back in time and just grabbing things from different years and you love to release singles (laughs) okay how about we do we go back to 2005 you did a track called running out yes and that was released on Chris Menace's uh, record label, Work It Baby. Yeah, so let's listen to that mm-hmm. and uh, we can talk about it after. So okay. this is Lifelike with Running Out.
was lifelike with the track running out from 2005 that might have been the extended version but uh, whatever it's a good song so did you do this one with chris manis oh no no i actually met chris through a friend that i was supposed to produce uh, an artist called patrick alavi 
he was doing house music, like classic French house. And he, he introduced me to Chris and, and then we met and I said, he said, oh, don't you have some music to release? I have a record label. And I said, I'm working on this project called Running Out. So I made him listen to the track and he said, oh, I want this track. <laughs> That's so we actually, uh, <laughs> it went really fast. If you ask me the story once about Discopolis, I will tell you how fast we nailed the track. Mm. Like two glass, two, three glass of vodka and we were like in the studio producing the music. It was so funny. Well, as long as no one's falling off their chair, right? That's all that matters. No, no, because there's no guitarist you know yeah, yeah, yeah. if you don't have a guitarist <laughs> nobody falls from the chair the guitarist who are alcoholics yeah 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 well, <laughs> so when you were growing up then were you big into like disco and stuff like what were the inspirations for you not really I knew about disco because my parents had disco records of course mm. it was the time of their life was going to disco but uh, me it's more like I had no I was into pop music from the 80s something like very classic things like Frankie Goes to Hollywood early Petra Boy stuff, uh, Howard Jones, and all the, the classic top 40 stuff when you were created, you know. Mm -hmm. And then from there, then my taste had moved to what we called this Belgian scene called EBM, electronic body music. Mm. So it was more like in indie stuff, more aggressive music with lots of sounds and really hot, hot sounds. And from then after, I, I moved into techno. Techno, but like uh, classic uh, techno, Detroit techno and all these things. And I I only went to house music really late after. From your perspective then, like, are you the kind of guy who likes to dance? Because obviously, like, a lot of your tracks are really these sort of, like, dance floor sorts of things. Do you do you envision yourself as more the DJ at the front making people dance? Or are you the kind of guy who likes to dance? Because a lot of your tracks are dance music. Yeah, they're, they're, they're danceable, at least. No, no, I, I, I don't dislike to dance, but it's true if you ask me the question today, um, it's so... Strange to be dancing on the dance floor. Basically, I, I have difficult times to go and dance on the dance floor just because the music they play, I don't like it. So it's very rare. I go to a place and suddenly I'm like, oh my God, I want to dance on that. Yeah, yeah. Because music has changed so much those last years. So when it's about pop music, I can't stand it. <laughs> it's very, very difficult. But I'm not, I'm not so much of a DJ neither. I'm not like into DJ culture. Although I, I've been uh, going and meet uh, a lot of DJs before I started to produce myself music because the DJ at that time were like DJ community was growing up and all my friends that were into electronic music started to learn how to mix records and stuff like that but for me it was very, very late that I started to DJ I started to DJ only when I started to have offer but I'm not personally like a, what we could say a DJ a classic DJ I don't have like a DJ cutter I don't have the DJ t-shirt the DJ cap <laughs> and white pants from the 90s and all yeah, this yeah. stuff so I, I, I wasn't into that mostly because I come from this uh, pop scene, like this uh, rock indie pop scene. So to be honest, uh, the first time I heard that a DJ was making so much money by playing records, I was I was thinking, what the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How can you pay a guy so much money to just play music on the records? Mm. And I still think that it's the case today. I don't understand how you can pay someone. <laughs> how can people pay me so much money to go in a place and play records? I will never understand that, but I love to do it. Well, it's because they mix the two tracks together so well. That's what you're paying the big money for oh my when, God. They, when they do that yeah. blend. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, but uh, let's say in, in the past, the DJ had this function that they will, of course, bring some new tracks. They, they would bring some new music because all those DJ were into some specific type of music. And when they would go to the club, we would go and listen to what they would play because they would bring new records mm. because finding records was complicated back in the days. But today, 
a DJ is like, oh my god, he comes with his USB key, yeah. <laughs> he can drink, he can fall behind the turntable, he can just yes. die behind the turntable, it's going to continue to play his record, so... Yeah, that's the thing. Eh? Like, it's funny how just with the the way the technology moves, how some things do really seem like it will be obsolete. Because, mm-hmm. like you're saying, the idea of finding music that was like a skill and a talent and work. You'd have to go to record stores and find weird singles and expose people to new music. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, the Spotify algorithm, you just go, "Oh, I like music like Life Like. What else is there?" And it'll just give you a giant playlist. Yeah, you're cutting out the middleman of this DJ guy. Yeah, it kind of... Uh, okay, it's really cool to have all this music available. I, I'm not going to say it's not cool. I'm a Spotify a subscriber. I pay for for that. But um, I think it somehow killed the envy to find the new music. Mm-hmm. That's why the record industry today is like the way it is. Why the commercial scene is so big? Well, because there's always commercial artists and it will always exist. And uh, some of them are good. But a lot of them are really shitty <laughs> musician producers singers sure because with the auto-tune you can just you take your voice you put in the auto-tune and everybody's gonna love that uh, because it's a genre okay I understand but yeah I think for me personally uh, I cannot talk in the name of a newcomer who's 20 years old today I don't know how they look at music uh, I have some little brothers some cousins they never bought any records in their entire life they don't know what it is to buy a record yeah 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 because for them the music is free uh, you go on uh, Spotify or and they don't subscribe to service like that. So it's a very different way of looking at music. My honest opinion about the digital retail store, it was very interesting at start because they had uh, changed the charts from physical to digital so there was still a chart. Mm -hmm. You could still see who's the number one, who's the number 40, who's the number 100 and it's still the case with Beatport. But what people don't know is that the number one, for example, in in the indie charts in Beatport, the number one is going to sell 60 mp3 per week sure so the guy who's, who smashes you with a promo mail saying yeah we're number one on Beatport like he says nothing he means nothing yeah. there's a lot of things like that in the world that it sounds prestigious and then when you find out like when someone sells books uh-huh. and like the New York Times bestseller list uh-huh. is like the thing that yeah, yeah, oh yeah. the New York Times bestsellers list yeah, and it turns out that that just means like you sold like maybe 10,000 copies or something which is a lot of books but in your head you feel like it must be in the millions because it's a bestseller or whatever and then it turns out you don't have to shift that many books you know yeah well culture has changed the way we consume the way we are living our culture life today has changed because of the easy way about getting uh, movies music yeah and all the culture around that has changed because you don't have to go in a theater if you want to see a movie you can just download it even if you wait two weeks you will find it on the internet and that system has somehow killed the interest to go Go and fetch the information because it was like before I would never consider this it would be a job to go to a record store and get get record because this is the way you had to get record you could only get it to the record store yeah 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 so it's a long debate about that there's good things it's very accessible it's very easy to get but that kills for me in my opinion that kills the interest to get the stuff you know why would you get the stuff if someone rings at your door and said you want the next lifelike well here I have 10 records for you okay yeah, yeah, yeah. and it throws it to you <laughs> and you're like okay but I already have 20 lifelikes from last week so what I'm gonna do with do 
shows. You know? <laughs> well, you do whatever with it. <laughs> well, look, uh, speaking of lifelike records here, let's listen to another track. Mm-hmm. I want to skip ahead here and listen to So Electric, okay. which is a few years later, mm-hmm. and we'll do that and then we'll keep chatting. So this is So Electric by Lifelike.
And that was So Electric by Lifelike. And I'm here with Lifelike right now, Laurent, Ash. Yeah. We're talking about the state of digital music in this day and age. And yes. People, uh getting drunk and falling off of chairs and we were talking about how you know the way we connect with and consume music has changed and it's just another reason why you know the internet has been this extreme shift in our lives you know because mm-hmm. I'm 42 and I lived mm-hmm. you know half my life without the internet and half with it no, just like me and yeah, yeah. like it's just too much information all the time like you know everyone seems to have the same issues like you you log into Netflix mm-hmm. and there's so many movies that you end up watching nothing yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and it's the same with music you can see a giant playlist Mm -hmm. I used to have my favorite songs you know when I was young where it's like maybe like two or three tapes and now I've got playlists that go on for days Mm -hmm. and then when I go I just want to listen to a fun song I don't even know what to fucking click on and so it's that weird overwhelming thing the internet has been the greatest thing ever and also kind of the worst thing ever at the same time and it's a battle constantly well it's amazing for communication right you can communicate really easily with people uh, all over the world like now we're doing an interview you are on the other side of the world so to speak we are, we are talking like we know each other blah, blah, blah. and this would never have been possible in the 80s you would have been on the phone with me and then you would have had the phone to, to be plugged on a tape <laughs> maybe to yeah, record what I'm saying <laughs> and the sound would have been that bad you know? and that weird delay too and the cost of the call because we have like I've got oh, like cousins two and, seconds delay yeah whenever we would call England or France I remember the big delay mm-hmm. and the call would end up costing like 30 bucks for like an hour you know it was yeah, a fortune it was a special occasion if you were going to yeah yeah that's that's right phone calls were really expensive actually we were paying for the phone calls you would be five minutes on the phone and they would invoice you two euro or three euro for that yeah yeah no it's insane <laughs> it's crazy when you think about it well speaking of that then because you've been making music for mm-hmm. a really long time mm-hmm. what would you say then I guess like the pros and cons like what software were you using Using, like for those early um, releases and do you just prefer it everything now or was there aspects of the way you were making music in the early 2000s that you liked well I I have now everything I always dreamt about mm. when I was young like I, I dreamt to have a computer in which I could just do everything including recording audio having the synth simulated in a computer having the effect in the computer having every, everything now can be in, a, in just one laptop which is amazing mm-hmm. but the fact that in fact when you release a concept it starts from up there where only a few of people can buy this concept because it's a rare concept like the sampling for example if we're mm-hmm. talking about sampling with samplers and stuff like when they started with that it was a sampler was costing a hundred thousand euro even more for some device and nobody could get it so you had the envy oh one day maybe I'm gonna be able to go in the studio and use this mm-hmm. and then it becomes normal you find it in stores so you, it's still very expensive I mean you still need to work three months to, to buy it you know mm-hmm. and then the price go down the price go down and down and down and down and now with a simple like four hundred dollars PC you could do a, an entire album in, in there. If you're good or bad, you can record music in a simple PC and everything is in, is in there. So this is really the change that happens over the last uh, four years, basically, from the time where digital stuff was only allowed for people who had a 300,000 euro budget to record his album. Mm. From today, any idiot, so to speak, <laughs> can buy a, a laptop and, and do music at home. And that has an advantage in the sense that confident musician can just, I can buy a MacBook Pro and 
and I can do my entire album on that. And this is amazing. But this also gives the opportunity to people who don't know how to do music and really are not good to <laughs> to produce mm-hmm. their own music. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there's no filter anymore. Um, when I talk about the filter, I'm talking about record labels. Back in the days, you would have two solutions. One, you send your demo to a record label or you self-produce it which means you record your own tracks at home or you go in the studio you get the master tape and you press the vinyl or a CD and you are your own producer and you have to register everything and you have to make the business around it I can go tomorrow I'm, I'm the worst musician ever I go to a store I buy a laptop I have a software that I downloaded for free or that a friend gave me mm. and I play music on it and I think it's amazing and I can put it on Spotify I use TuneCore and I put it on Spotify so there's no more filter. That's why you have hundreds of thousands of tracks that are going every day out. Well, it was already the case that there was a lot of music going out in, in the past. I'm not going to say that there was only uh, 10 artists releasing music. Mm. But today, there's so much music going out. And that's also part of the... I don't know if that's the word in English. Problem. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, problem. That's the exact <laughs> word I'm searching for. It's part of a problem. No, but it, it's part of the de- devaluation of the of the music. You know what I mean? Yes. It lowers the value of the form of art you're doing. If tomorrow anybody can become Picasso, okay? Anybody goes in a store, buys some uh, paintings, comes home, throws painting on the stuff and goes to a gallery and say, look at what I made and say, oh, this is amazing, man. I buy it uh, 10 euro. Yeah. Then you go in the gallery store and he's going to expose his stuff and he actually, it's 10 minutes he's been doing painting in his life. You know what I mean? (laughs) So you have this range of things. It also costs time because for me... I get sent lots of music, and I'm always looking mm-hmm. for stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to filter through a lot of stuff that's nonsense music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of it, I, I can't tell if people have way more confidence in themselves, or they're just not, or they just don't know. Because sometimes people will send music that's so bad that it surprises me. Because I'm the kind of person who I'm very self-conscious. Like even if I make something I'm proud of, mm-hmm. I'm still hesitant to show it to people because I'm like, maybe it's not as good as I think it is, or whatever. Yes, of course. And then. I will hear music that where the people sing and like the singing's all off key (laughs) and the note combinations are weird. Mm -hmm. And I just go, wow, like you listen to other people's music. How did you think that this was comparable in any way (laughs) to the music that you're listening to? It's, it's crazy to me. The thing is then I, I listen to it all. So it just is like more time I spend, (laughs) you know, listening to stuff that's like, you know. Yeah, it's, it's true. No, it, it has good sides. In fact, the difference from before, if we take now and before, the difference is that you wouldn't hear all those people, mm-hmm. okay? Because they wouldn't pass through the record label filter. The record label gets this, this demo and they listen to it and they, <laughs> they throw it to the trash or they reply and say, sorry, we're not interested. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. But you don't get to listen to the guy. And those days you get to listen to him because he can, he thinks, oh, I'm going to put it on the internet. Oh. Yeah. Then he wants to show it to his friend. Then he goes on YouTube. YouTube yes. is the best example. You just create a YouTube channel in, in 20 seconds. And then you put your video there and you're like, oh, I'm, a, I'm an influencer. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and the thing is, though, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like kind of like old, old men complaining. Mm. Every so often, there is good stuff. And I'm sure that in the past, there were artists who were maybe turned away who actually did make good music that we didn't get to hear, which is why I do listen to everything. Because mm-hmm. like every so often, there's a surprise. Mm-hmm. And that's great. The only problem is bad music hurts me. <laughs> like when someone plays the wrong note or sings off key it's like that sound of like audio cables being like
like ripped out of the jack like it's just like getting stabbed <laughs> it just hurts me for a second it's like why do they do that yeah i understand well i don't get to listen to so much of bad music to be honest and maybe because i i'm not going through the right channel to to listen to it because i i'm not like you i'm not like a, a vector of uh, getting all this music so i cannot complain about that i'm just saying that the function of the store is so easy to reach yes that's what i mean I mean, back in the days, going to make his music in a store, it was like, oh my God, you have music out in a store. Yeah, yeah. And, and also those barriers, I think, do push people to try harder. Mm -hmm. If you just boot mm -hmm. up Fruity Loops, you know, like FL Studio and like shit out a song in two seconds and then upload it to the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like back in the day, it would have been like a big deal. You're going to send your demo to the record label. You're going to really try hard and make sure this demo is as impressive as you can make it. Yes. And it's the time as well the time you spend yes, thinking about course. your own project because if you're going to send it in the mail that gives you an extra few days to sit with the track and then go oh maybe actually maybe we could do this or maybe we could change this but if you just make a thing and then instantly put it on the internet without any consideration you might have a miracle song that is actually really cool mm -hmm. but chances are it's, it's always good to sit with what you've created for at least a, you know like a day or so and think about yeah, yeah, ways yeah, exactly. it can be improved or whatever yeah it's it's true it's it's not like we get so much bad music it's not it's not so much about that it's more the fact that the music industry made a the wrong decision in my opinion huh? mm -hmm. i can be wrong but my opinion is that music music industry has made a wrong decision when they had decided to stop producing physical records for example if you look at the gaming industry at some points they wanted to stop producing physical games on blu-ray or dvd for consoles and they had noticed that they would fuck up the entire uh, second-hand market for example because how, how are you going to go in the store and buy second-hand games if you don't build them if you don't get them from a factory and also all the stores that were selling the games were also selling consoles so they get they got to listen to gamers and and people working for them and they decided they're gonna keep the games because you always want to go in the store and buy the game you hear a good it's a good game okay you go to the store you buy it but also because you want to have the game you want to have the the object and that's what the record industry made wrong is that they took the wrong decision they were like oh there's a lot of piracy we are losing sales so they started to deal with Apple and Apple had this fantastic idea that they would make pay zero dot 99 dollar for one track which is sick if you think about it <laughs> although we say oh steve jobs saved the industry but this to make pay one track one dollar so they sold a lot of mp3 the three first week because people moved into uh, itunes and everything yeah but in fact this this killed the, the system before you had to press a record and you got the object and now they're trying hard to come back with this but it's too late because nobody's gonna go and and, and buy your album on a, on a cd in a store unless he's a purist and he, he wants to have the object mm -hmm. it's too late because now people have learned a new way to consume music and now it's too late for that so that that's the biggest error they, they did in my in my opinion and that's what has killed all the economy around it because i can tell you like 20 years ago we would sell 50,000 vinyls a big reference in an indie release even the people like jeff mills that were doing detroit techno they would sell 50,000 records so the indie scene had an economy and this economy was wealthy 
And therefore, when the economy was wealthy, you could uh, offer a record deal to artists and propose them an advance and, you know, and promote the record. And today, with the way things are functioning, you cannot offer an artist any advance because the promotion costs almost all the income you're going to make the first year. It goes into the promotion of the record. And the promotion of the record is, is so difficult to make because people get all this information constantly every day. So they forget very quickly about a release. So that's that's the way things are working today. Yeah, totally. And I think this is true of like all streaming. You know, like it's the same thing that's happening in TV mm-hmm. and uh, movies too, you know. But look, listen, before, <laughs> <laughs> I want to keep talking about this, but we uh, have to listen to some more music. Yeah, 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 so... Yeah. How about we listen to the other track you released with So Electric, because that's a good one. Uh, It's called Disco Machine by Lifelike.
And that was Disco Machine by Lifelike. And I'm here with Lifelike right now. Laurent, you were just uh, talking about the way the digital distribution of music sort of messed with the business model and how artists were paid and stuff. And I just quickly wanted to point out the parallel between that and TV and film. Because once everything is available on streaming, it sort of changes what you will and won't see in a movie theater. Because, you know, if you wait a few weeks or months, it'll be on streaming anyways. And then the only movies that make money are big dumb movies. Exactly. And it's even affected me because I sit there and go, mm-hmm. well, unless Spider-Man's in this, of why course. do I want to go to the fucking theater? Like, yeah, Of course. Whereas, you know, even in high school, it was still cool to go see like just a small crime drama or something. Mm-hmm. You know, if it had actors you liked yeah, yeah, or the yeah, director yeah, totally. you liked. I was going often to theater. If I could, I would go every every Wednesday because it was the afternoon. We had no school, so so yeah, I would I would go very often. And today, I don't feel like going there because first of all, the offer in in terms of movie quality has really shrinked down. There's very little movie you're gonna find uh, today in a theater that are good. That's also due to the fact that probably the movie industry is facing the same problems than the music industry. They have a bigger budget, but the big budget goes into all this extremely commercial movie mm-hmm. that you never understand who's gonna go and see this shit. <laughs> <laughs> all that Marvel's crap things, like unbelievable. They they are shooting uh, two or three movies like that every year. It's crazy. That's gonna stop now because they've had really poor quality yeah. control lately. <laughs> I do like superheroes and I like big science fiction and stuff. Okay. But even for me, they're getting really stupid. It's like they're not written properly. This is a problem because... I would be the kind of person who would go see those movies and even I don't want to see them anymore because there's too many of them. It's not special. They, uh-huh. they don't make sense. The stories are bad. You know, all the ways that something can be bad is is, is what's happening with, with them right now. But And again, yeah, you're right because there's no solution because now we've all been... Um, everyone's used to the way it works. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of turning things back and saying, actually, no, you want music, you got to go to the record store, then it's like, yeah, it's, it's impossible. It's like, you have to play along with the game or else you're just left out of the game, like with stupid social media where you have to post like eight times a day or whatever. And it's like, I don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the problem today. You have to live with it. It's just very, not as important as it used to be because the system has too much offer. Mm-hmm. If there is too much offer, why would you be interested if it's the example I gave you, it's like the guy rings at your door and says, hey, by the way, I have all these uh, Daft Punk records. Don't you want them? And, and then you will say, oh, I already have this one, this one, this one. But he's like, yeah, but take it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Take it. <laughs> like, I don't want them. I don't want them. I have them. You know? And it's a little bit the same with the offer today. I like this guy at the door is awesome. <laughs> Just giving people yeah, records. the guy at the door who rings, you know? <laughs> and the consumer becomes even more lazy. If we push the concept further, you, you become lazier because... I always said one day you will have to fetch the the audience. You will have to fetch them in the limousine at home. Bring them in the either in the store or in the, <laughs> in the club for free. They get free drinks, and even for that, they would you would ring at the door and they would say, "Oh, I'm tired. I'm not going tonight." Finally, and the other guy would say. Yeah, well, how much drink do I, for free do I get? And you like three drinks? He's like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> if I don't go if it's not four drinks. <laughs> There's just different types of people as well. Because for me, I like the excitement of finding new music. Mm-hmm. So that's something that's always interested well, me. You, you are you are an exception then. Yes, I I appreciate that. Because most people I know those days they don't give a shit about music. Because well, to me, it's like 
There's nothing more awesome than being like surprised by a really good song. Mm -hmm. Even if I I have all this music in my playlist that I have to listen to for the show, mm -hmm. and maybe I'm doing chores, I'm doing the dishes, and I have the music on in the background, <laughs> and all of a sudden a song will just jump out, and I'll be like, wait a second, because a lot of it's okay. A lot of the music is fine, mm -hmm. but it's the special songs. Like when you hear a fucking special song, just like holy shit, what the fuck is this? And that's a really exciting thing. Like that's one of my favorite feelings in the world is just being surprised by good art. It happens with movies. Oh, that, that's good, but that's good. That's the, the right attitude to have. I'm, I'm not talking about about this aspect uh, actually of the stuff. I'm just talking about the other aspect of it. But the enthusiasm, yes, uh, that's it's good to be like that, of course. You have to, otherwise, if if I throw you some tracks, you're gonna be like, ah, yeah. another life track. <laughs> what is that one? How, mu how much drinks am I gonna get for free if I listen to your music? You get three drinks. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the thing, though, because like everyone approaches music in a different way. Mm -hmm. Like my wife, for example, she likes music that she recognizes. You know, it's like a comfort thing, mm -hmm. and I like that as well. But for me, discovering new awesome music is like the real magic, and it means I like the music for the actual merits of the music. You know. Because whereas yes. when you like songs you recognize, it's usually because you just heard the fucking thing on the radio like a thousand times and it got burned into your brain. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. even worse, you know, nowadays it's the repetition on like TikTok videos and you just start to think, you know, do I like this song yes, or yes, yes. is this just because it's been in every fucking video this week? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, I don't know why we're talking right now about that because we're going to go into depression if we continue yeah, to speak <laughs> about <laughs> The, well, like, the crash of the music okay. industry. No, no, we'll, we'll get an upbeat here. How about this? Let's listen to another song. We'll we'll move ahead here. This is a song called Sunset from, I think this is like 2009. This is like a mm -hmm. nine-minute song, mm -hmm. which you did with Yota. That's right. So let's listen to that, and then we'll keep chatting, and then we'll we'll talk about happy things. Okay.
And that was Sunset by Lifelike and Yota. And I'm here with Lifelike right now. Laurent, hello, is this where hello. you met Yota? This, this is where I met Yota? You mean where? On the sunset? Well... <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere on the sunset. <laughs> well, back in in two thousand nine, I no, guess. No, we we actually we actually met we met through MySpace. Actually, you remember MySpace? Mm, I do. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the downfall of MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, MySpace. Yeah, yeah. MySpace was really good for music. Actually, mm. after we had to move to Facebook, I thought it was so depressing. Facebook. Oh yeah. I hate Facebook. I think Facebook is so impersonal. Even if you if you wanted to personalize a little bit your graphics in Facebook you couldn't do it everything has to be formatted this program is just awful and then it, it, for, it you, you have all these people posting a, a photo of what they eat <laughs> what frustrates me about a lot of social media stuff is because, and obviously it just creates fights, like people are always fighting with each other. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the algorithm doesn't promote art. Like, that's what I wish it would do. Oh, no, of course not. Instead of promoting, you know, like, here's some dead people and here's something to be mad about and here's a politician you don't like. Mm-hmm. I just wish as you were scrolling, it just goes, here's some music, here's a movie trailer. Exactly. When I think of MySpace, it's like, it was so cool to just have a social media platform that was sort of sent around music mm-hmm. a lot of people like that was the main thing was just here are my five songs or here's this and that exactly and you and it was possible if you were good in HTML language you could personalize your page and it, some had amazing graphics on their page I don't remember the name of the DJ but one of these DJ had this fantastic stuff and he gave me the contact of the guy who did the mm. layout so I, I was like can you do a layout for me <laughs> <laughs> and that was really funny yeah 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 but that's yeah well if we come to this social stuff I'm very laid back with social now I don't post much stuff uh, mostly because I'm not so interested and um, I think I passed the time where I thought it would give some feedback when you self-promote yourself so much I don't have the feeling that it gives a good feedback that's uh, my opinion you can entertain a community with stuff for sure mm. but uh, I don't I'm not sure if you post constantly stuff it, it brings something the truth is that if I look at the number of followers I have on Instagram although I'm on Instagram since maybe three years or four years I don't know exactly since when I'm there but uh, on Instagram I have like maybe not even 3,000 followers but if you go on SoundCloud or Facebook because it's older or if you go on Spotify you can see I have uh, 31,000 subscribers and 500,000 plays a month which is so surprising surprising to me because I I'm always surprised I see all these plays when I'm not releasing any music mm-hmm. you know what I mean and you see the other artists constantly are releasing music and they want to be out there and they want to be they have the image and they, it's very important they're taking photos of what they do and, and things mm. and I do nothing <laughs> that's a proof for me that you can still reach people through music without having uh, the need of having so much image and that's very important for me and that's the positive side of it that I'm very happy happy about it. The other day I went to check my page on, on Spotify and I saw, oh my God, I have so many followers because last time I checked it was like maybe 10,000 followers. <laughs> and I said, well, how come all these people gathered on Spotify, but they are not on, on Instagram, but because there's nothing to look at in Instagram. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? If I would post the photos of what I eat every day, I don't think I would get any more plays than what I already have. Yeah. It has nothing to do with yourself. And the algorithm likes certain things. Like I get more likes if I post a picture of my cat mm-hmm. than I do, you know, cause I've got a cute kitten. 
person. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, if I post that, you know, I'll get a lot more people engaging and happy to see a kitten. If you're a pretty girl, (laughs) well, obviously, I mean, like you see what Yoda does with her thing, right? So like... Yeah, yeah, Yoda is totally into that, completely. You also find out just how weird people are in general because i just had yota on the show obviously and mm-hmm. i was talking to her about those nine panel pictures she puts out mm-hmm. where it's like nine pictures that makes mm-hmm. up one big picture yeah you can just look at them and you can see where people put their hearts okay and that tells you all you need to know about society <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> exactly well you know the, the social stuff the problem with the social media it's again the same problem that we talked about before about no filter about the music you know we said you do a track on a $400 computer you think it's brilliant and you just put it on the internet (laughs) and you say oh look I released some music and it's the same with the social media like Facebook when someone posts something then you have all these people gathering around it say oh I hate it yeah you're an idiot and the other one is fighting with the guy who posted the comments about (laughs) about something that has nothing to do with the post actually what is is, uh, funny with this is that you can see that people don't think about what they're gonna write most of the time it's very spontaneous Mm -hmm. that's again the same problem that with the record those things you shouldn't see them you know what I mean yes you think you see this picture of this guy who's an idiot you think he's an idiot and you think oh what a fuck what a fucking idiot he is <laughs> like a, a celebrity or something yeah, okay? yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he posts a photo of himself he's like uh, in his swimming pool like blah, blah, blah. and then you think oh, what an idiot but most people are like going on the stuff and they say what an idiot and they post it because mm. they don't have the filter anymore that's why you, you see exactly the temperature of what's going on around something by reading the comments you can see uh, exactly what people think but maybe that's that's only what they think the first 10 seconds. Maybe five minutes after they think, oh, it's not nice to say that. But they won't erase it, you know? I think social media has been like an experiment. Mm-hmm. And I think the lesson should be when you post something, you should have like a time limit of like 10 minutes before it actually goes up so that you have to think. Because it's like in civilized society, when you go outside, there's a lot of things that we do mm-hmm. to maintain the civility of of the exactly. world right like that's exactly what i think you see someone mm-hmm. who's an idiot you don't yell at them you don't yes, call someone exactly. a f- like there's moments where exactly you're in a situation where someone does wrong you or they bump into you or you drop something or whatever and you still because you're in real life you you don't go immediately like you fucking asshole exactly i'm gonna chase you to your house like you go <laughs> oh it's okay sorry about that I, I you know it's all right or whatever yeah, yeah. and it's like the internet people don't do that <laughs> They just go to their first thing and exactly and that's and that's really a bad beha- way of that's really bad behaviors it's exactly what you said about this guy you bump into someone and you don't like his his, his t-shirt yeah. you're not gonna <laughs> write on his back while he's walking look at this guy he has a fucking t-shirt he looks like an idiot you know what i mean <laughs> But you're going to think about it. (laughs) You're going to think like that. Yeah, because now I think in the past few years, especially, we've seen more and more the fact that we do more of our lives online, that our online Mm. persona is a representation of our real life. Like, since I grew up, you know, without the internet for, like, my first 20 years, Mm -hmm. when the internet first came out, it really felt like, oh, this is just a tool. This isn't me. I'm not Mm -hmm. the guy on the computer. I'm a guy using a computer. And now you sort of are the person online as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that people don't respect that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, they, they don't think, like, oh, 
whatever I say online, people are going to to them. It's like I'm in person saying that to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's uncivilized behavior. Yeah, basically. <laughs> no, but really, it's really like uncivilized be- behavior. You can think that this guy looks like an idiot. You don't have to write <laughs> so that he reads it. You know yes, I mean? exactly. For you, he's going to be an idiot, but for his girlfriend, he's going to be a genius. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's all this way of expressing yourself. And that's why me personally, I'm not using the social media that much. For me, it's just a promotion tool when I have something to release and then I use it because it's a, it's a, the, a way to reach for free people to a certain network yeah, but yeah, yeah. The, the rest the, the side the social part of it which consists in uh, filming myself personally in, in stuff I'm not so interested in that but that's also because I don't have maybe the I don't have the an ego like an artist yes. I've been working with lots of artists and they all have such big egos mm-hmm. so for them it's very important to be upfront and to show that they're good looking or that they wear the, the latest clothes from this brand or that they you know which is normal if you if you think about the artistic it's kind of normal that the artist wants to be because he has this need to have a feedback from an audience mm-hmm. towards what he does and that's very different from a normal guy who goes to work he doesn't <laughs> want the guy who goes to work he doesn't want to open his window and have 10,000 people down in the street like he's an accountant and he has 10,000 people clapping at him like he's been doing a good <laughs> job this morning but the artist if he doesn't have 10,000 people clapping in the streets he's going to be depressed yes <laughs> where the accountant is going to say go the fuck out of here I'm working <laughs> and speaking of working it's my job here to play cool music so uh, let's listen to another lifelike track so we're gonna listen to sequencer how about that let's listen to sequencer by lifelike
And that was Sequencer by Lifelike. And I'm chatting with Lifelike right now, Laurent. And we're talking about the ego of the artist wanting attention and contrasting that with some office worker who just wants to be left alone. And uh, <laughs> well, what's funny is like the electronic musician is sort of a weird balance of those two things. Because like for the most part, you are like an office worker. Like you're just sitting in a desk working at a computer mm-hmm. with just that weird artistic need to create art. And, you know, you want people mm-hmm. to like it. Which is the principal purpose of putting music out after you liked it of course mm-hmm. but you can also like to have only you as your own, <laughs> as your own listener <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just kidding I, I never met any musician who's like that I, I just like to, to listen myself to my music and if I think it's good then it's, it's enough for me <laughs> there is people that sort of you know they'll be like as long as you know I like my music and maybe other people will like it we'll see uh, yeah, yeah. but deep down you do want other people to like it. When you put something out there... Yeah, yeah, of course. So it is different when you are an electronic, when you're not necessarily, like, fronting a band or have, like, an image to maintain. You are sort of like an office worker for the mm-hmm. producing part, but then still have that exactly. artist mentality of, but I am going to see the feedback and see how people feel, and then you will feel those emotions. Yeah, of course you want the job, and you also want the glory of the job, mm. you know? That's the purpose of being a musician. You want to be recognized as... Being a good worker as a musician, which is not the case for other jobs. Like, I guess let's just go back in time here a bit because, mm-hmm. sorry, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm gonna cut you off, and we're just gonna go back in time. What, what decade do we go back? The fifties? I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> because obviously, for you and your like success as lifelike, mm-hmm. there were these sort of like key moments, and one of them seems to be was it the Together tour when the dude from Daft Punk they spun your track or whatever ah, right oh yeah yeah it's, well it's a sort of moment of glory but that's again it's those stories from the past that can only be story from the past mm. if I can tell you the story is that you don't know about that I learned about that maybe two years after it happened right two years after they did this tour someone said oh uh, someone has recorded um, a gig and in this gig uh, they play your track and I'm like, who plays my track? He's like, well, it's uh, Falcon and Bangata. I said, oh, really? That's amazing. But uh, when was that? He's like, yeah, 2001. I said, okay, <laughs> 2002. I don't remember what was the year. I said, okay, well, that's, it's good to know, but it's a bit late. <laughs> You know what I mean? But you were able, through that, to then make connections, right? So did it literally take two years until you found out, and then you go like, maybe I can reach out to these people? It's actually simpler than that. At that time, I was signed on to a small record label in in, uh, Paris called 20,000 ST. And this record label was a hundred person doing typical French house stuff. Mm. They had a couple of artists, like one of the artists was called Demon, and he had just released You Are my high when I arrived there and the track started to be uh, very famous and they started to sell a lot of records so I arrived at that time and at that time in Paris there was a big ecosystem of independent electronic music labels and among one of those uh, labels there was a label that just started called Ed Banger Ed Banger was owned by Pedro Winter and Pedro Winter was managing Daft Punk at that time and he he was a kind of trendsetter mm. basically in Paris uh, locally already he was known for DJing and he, he used to make a lot of connection with people because he was in this position that Daft Punk was so famous that all the media was, would go to him so he had this huge uh, address book 
mm-hmm. and phone number book. He knew everybody in the business, basically. So what happened is that when Van Galter played this track with, with Falcon, he one day came to the record label and he said, oh, this new artist that you have signed, Lifelike, I would like him to do a remix for me because I'm starting a new record label. And the record label back in days was, was called Headbanger. And he turned, after a couple of years, he turned it to Headbanger. So that's how I met this guy, how I met Pedro Winter. And Pedro Winter and I, we had a good connection. So when he asked me to do the remix, he came to my place and because I was fixing some mixing stuff back in the days, the mixing was a little complicated because we had all this real device to work with. And uh, we, we had a good connection and I was going often to see him in, in Montmartre to show him demos. Uh, I, I was trying to release records and to socialize and to meet. And so one day I go to Ed Banger, who, who was actually the place for Daft Tracks, where Daft Punk had their own label. So one, one of these days, DJ Falcon went to the place and so that's how I met him. And I said, oh, but I play a track of you. And I said, yes, I, I know you play this track. <laughs> and there was other people that were coming to the place. There was Philips Dar, Cassius, who came the same day because they knew each other. They were all neighbor in this area, actually. In the 18th district, uh, near Montmartre, uh, there's a uh, lot of artists are coming from there, actually. Uh, Bangalter had his house there. Uh, Guy Manuel, Roman Cristo, is living there. So sometimes if you go to uh, one of these cafes there, you can see sometimes uh, Guy Manuel is there having a cafe. So at that time, I guess this is sort of a weird question, but did you feel confident in your own setup? I mean, because you, you're on this label, but then if some like half of Daft Punk says, hey, I want to go check out your stuff or whatever, mm-hmm. was that like a big deal in your head? Are you nervous? You're like, what if he comes to my house and sees that my setup isn't cool? Or did you have confidence? Oh, yes, that, like, yes, yes. Yes, I was extremely nervous. Uh, of course, uh, when when I knew uh, Pedro Vinta called me and said, I'm going, at, at that time I was, I was living in the southern district of Paris. He said, I'm, I'm going to go to bakery in the area where you live because I like the bakery there, <laughs> he told me. <laughs> I'm going there with my scooter and maybe I can pass by and you can show me where you are at with the remix. And I said, yeah, 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 of course. And of course, uh, when, when he said that, I had to clean out the entire studio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had, to, had to clean out the entire studio and try to pose a little bit so I put it a lot of record from there and there yeah it's like a, a, a super nervous I was super nervous actually because I always wanted to meet them because uh, I come from the east of France from a, a city called Strasbourg which is near Germany then I moved to Paris because of the music and coming from there for me it was really a big thing that I would go and meet all these for me they were superstars mm-hmm. at that time so meeting them and, and, and hearing that they would play my record so this was enough for me when I heard them. actually when I heard that they were playing my record I thought okay I think I'm on the right way yeah 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 you know? <laughs> it's a sign I said this is a sign I'm on the right way. And because they are such a small circle of friends and they were very nice people with me, they say, oh, what are you producing? What device are you using? And then uh, between musicians, we talk about all this gear stuff. <laughs> so it was like suddenly I was like sitting with these people like that are always drunk to, to meet. 
I was there having a beer and it was just normal. And I was like, oh my God. So when I left the, in the evening, when I took the subway back to home, I was like so excited. I was like, oh my God, I meet all, I met all these people now. <laughs> this, is, this is unbelievable. The sort of the opposite question then, when you became sort of, you know, closer with these people, did you ever mm-hmm. go to their studios and find out that they were less high tech than you thought they would be? No, I, I get, I get actually to me, I got not so close with Falcon because Falcon was not living in Paris anymore he was coming sometimes okay, he lived yeah. in the southwest of France on the coastline so he was coming back and forth so I, I, I didn't have time to go and meet them I met Bonkalter and, and Guy Manuel one day and I met again Guy Manuel a couple of years ago but I never had the chance to see the studio but I had the chance to see Alan Brax's studio uh, which was enough for me because Alan Brax for me was my uh, favorite producer and that also was so fucking strange that it happens that I released on his record label right yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somehow, four years or five years before this story, before I would met them all, I was like, I got this record as a promotion. I got this Vulture number one intro record. And it's a friend of mine who's a DJ who gave it to me. And I heard it. I was like, oh, this is going to be such a big hit. It's impossible that it's not going to be a hit. Mm. And it happens to be a hit. But then I thought, this guy, who is this guy? And you were looking on the record and you find no information about him. So you see a little mail address on the record, right? And there was a little mail, vulture at yahoo or at wannadoo.fr, something like that. And one day when I was, when then I moved to Paris, I took the mail on the record and I took my mail clients, like this early mail clients from the late 90s, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and I write a mail to the record label and I say, oh, hello, um, my name is Lifehack, I'm doing music on this record label and and I have some demos I would like you to listen to. Then I have no news for two weeks and suddenly I got a mail back and it was the record label who answered and said oh uh, yes come by to see us bring your demo. And I was like what? (laughs) I couldn't believe it that they would answer you know what I mean because at some point at that time I had produced a couple of records and I gave them to Hule Records who was the label from Thomas Bangalter but one day I go to Hule Records and they have this entrance this building entrance and I see the mailbox was full of promotion (laughs) so many people wanted wanted them to listen to the music yeah 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 so I was like I was like I'm not going to put my record in there I'm going to lose a record Mm -hmm. nobody's going to listen to it so yeah that's the funny side of it and then when I go to Vulture of course I don't meet Alan Brax because he wasn't there actually he, it was the label manager who offered me to come by and she said oh uh, I know your music uh, I've been listening to your music and I was like really? <laughs> you've been listening to my music? she said yeah, yeah I know your music and she said to me something she said if you ever have something for us send it to me and then I was like oh, my music is not as good I can I cannot release there I thought you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's not possible my, he will he will laugh if he's going to hear my demo which was true because my production was really simple and rough at that time even the stuff that Falcon and Bangator played was a very simple track with two or three samples going together there was nothing played on keyboard mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like oh, I, just, I have nothing for them it's only when uh, me and Chris met and when we did uh, this track that we called Discopolis. I don't remember why we called it like this because it was disco. And uh, that he said, where can we send this track? And I said, oh, I have a contact from Vulture Music. And he said to me, ah, but this record label is never going to listen to our music. I said, yes, yes, I know she's going to listen to it. Uh, so I explained to him that uh, it was Alain's cousin who was taking care of the record label. And so we sent it to her mm. and she heard the track and she said, oh, uh, it's amazing. We want to release it. And then we couldn't believe it. We were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, how about this? 
this? Let's listen to it. Now, I, I, actually, the version I was listening to was referred to as the 2015 rework. Yeah, which is not as good as the original one. That what? I, I recognize. <laughs> I recognize that for me, the rework we did uh, only the club version of this of the rework is interesting for me personally, musically, because we sold this package to a record label and we wanted the new artists doing remixes. Okay, well then let's listen to the original one. How about that? <laughs> Which is just Discopolis, right? Like it's not 2.0 yeah, yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like a nine minutes track. Well, we got nine minutes to spare. Let's listen to this. This is Now, you did this one with Chris Menes, right? Yes. Okay, yes. so this is Lifelike and Chris Menes with Discopolis.
And that was Discopolis by Lifelike and Chris Menace. I'm here with Lifelike right now, Laurent. We're taking a trip down memory lane and all the exciting things that happened to you, bouncing around, meeting your uh, Mm -hmm. musical idols and stuff. Yes, it was a lot of fun. How did you go about... Because in the early days, I, I don't think people were like bouncing tracks and sending stems back and forth to each other. So when you work on a track with another person, what did that mean? Like you guys were sitting together or like trading <laughs> discs of files? Like what what were you doing? Uh, you're talking about the production for Discopolis or what? Yeah, sure. What the hell? Yeah. Well, we, we actually met through a guy that I was supposed to produce that was actually a friend of Chris because I didn't know Chris at the time. And then he gave my contact to Chris. Chris and Chris contacted me, I think through a chat, I think it was ICQ at that time <laughs> or something like that. Because I'm originated from the east of France and he's in Germany, it happens that he was maybe one hour by car from the city where I was going to visit my parents. I go back to see my parents and we then we met, we, we have dinner and we have the same opinion about music and, and the same humor. And then I thought this is very rare because German producer, I knew a lot of German producer because in the past, before in the 90s, I made a lot of record in Germany, techno record. So I, I know that Germans are quite serious. So not, it's not that they don't have humor, yeah, yeah, yeah. but they don't have the same humor. Than, so it, you, you have not to throw too much jokes because they don't always understand yeah. <laughs> too much into jokes. So I thought, uh, okay, let's let's be cool with Chris and not start with jokes, silly jokes. Maybe he's not going to like it. But actually, he, was, he, he had the same silly jokes than me. So, <laughs> so he made all these jokes of the people in the music industry. And he said, tonight, I'm driving back to Stuttgart, one of the big cities in Germany, and there's friends of mine who are playing in a theater. They are DJs. I don't remember the name of these guys now. They have disappeared since. So we took, he said, do you want to come with me? And I said, well, I have nothing else to do. So, okay, mm. let's go in Germany. So we drove through Germany for like one or two hours. That's also <laughs> crazy when you think about it. You know, you meet a guy at a, at a dinner and he's he's throwing jokes at you and he said, let's go to Germany. I mean, <laughs> you know, today you would think twice, you would think, what does he want from me that we have to go to Germany now? Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> That's when you're a bit young, you know, you're still a bit naive. So you do a lot of stuff. Sure. So we go in this theater and, and we, we met this DJ and we have some drinks and he says, shall I drive you home? And I said, uh, yeah, okay, why not? So he drives me back all the way to my place. And I thought, this guy is crazy. He's been doing two hours on the way to go to meet me for dinner, two hours on the way to the club and two hours on the way back. <laughs> so the next weekend I contacted him. I said, let's meet again. Uh, it was fun, blah, blah, blah. So we meet again and he says, Let's go to my place. I show you my studio. But another hour and a half drive to his place. Yeah. <laughs> and then we go to his studio and he was actually one of the first guy I met who was doing everything in a computer. Because at that time, doing everything, the computer was like, no, you need a lot of equipment and a lot of money. So Chris, actually, he was a, a party promoter in Germany. He was a known party promoter and he was a music producer. He was producing records for other artists. And uh, so he had made quite a lot of money with that. So his studio was really amazing. He had these huge desks, a lot of uh, synthesizers and a lot of equipment. So he just sat there and I, I said, oh, show me a little bit how the computer, how you can make music only on the computer because I've never seen that <laughs> before. And uh, so we started to, to play around with stuff. Uh, and I said, oh, he, and you can have all this effect on the stuff. He's like, yeah, you can open as much as you want. <laughs> so I said, oh, I saw on the floor he records i said oh you like me you you leave records like that on the floor he said yeah yeah so i took the pile of records and 
the second or third record he had is the exact I was working recently on a demo track and it was the same record I was I had sampled and I said oh this is sick this record I just sampled it maybe 10 days ago and I wanted to do something with it and, and I got stuck into the loop with it and I don't manage to get anything out of it he's like oh what record so I said yeah it's this Kano record another life mm-hmm. he said oh yeah uh, he said well uh, what part of the record did you use so we put it on a turntable we listened to it I showed him what I used and then he said oh why, why do you want to use this part where there, there are all these instruments why don't you use the small part where there's only these four notes and I'm like why would you use only four notes <laughs> <laughs> he's like oh because they sound interesting so we, we did like this so we sampled these four notes and the next record we had in a pile was a disco record and the disco record started with the drums the drums that you hear in Discopolis actually so we took the drums from the record these new loops and we started to play around that I remember he, he, he was like oh do you want to drink something so we started to drink a lot of vodka, vodka <laughs> something, and then we started to play around and, and two hours later the principal part of the track was there and it was like maybe 5am it was too late for him to bring me back home so he said maybe you can sleep here I said yeah okay no problem so I slept there and the next morning because he's a crazy guy who never sleeps <laughs> the next morning he calls me he's like did you sleep well I'm like yeah he says come over to the studio I have something to show you <laughs> so I go to the studio and the track was over almost arranged everything was almost arranged I'm like what you finished everything because <laughs> I played the little parts and you had finished the track and from there he, we, we discussed what we're going to do with this uh, I thought at start I didn't like so much the track because uh, I wanted to I was into this classic French disco stuff and this track to me sounded so weird there was so many synthesizers in there you know and at that time it was not really the sound you would make to go to clubs you know it was the sound was more disco-ish stuff yeah. and disco police sounded like a hybrid trance and whatever weird uh, thing so I wasn't sure I was like this you want to release it and he was like yeah yeah it's amazing he was like totally enthusiastic and I was like I think it sounds like shit. <laughs> and I said, okay, but let's do like this. I know this girl at Vulture. We compile a couple of your tracks, a couple of my tracks, and we send them to her and they, they choose which they want to release. And if this track gets released, bah, then we, we release it together. And all the demos we send, the only stuff they were interested in is this disco police. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how it happened. So they decided to sign it. And, and at that time, there was no digital release or anything like that. They basically, the promotion consisted in pressing a hundred records and sending it out to DJs, including people in UK, like trendsetters, like Pete Tong, who had a show on, on BBC Radio, Radio One, which is like a big, big uh, national radio. And then we didn't know what happens. The record went out in June. 2005, something like that. And we didn't know what happens until maybe September or October. And we get a phone call from the record label and the, the record label said, you don't know what's happening, guys. And we were like, no. She said, but it's a big, it's a huge hit in Ibiza. And then we were like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? It's a huge hit in Ibiza. <laughs> and, and she said, yeah, it's like all the DJs are playing it. It's everywhere on every day, every turntables. We have requests to maybe repress the vinyl. We have repressed the vinyl again and we're going to repress it again. And we were like, what? So we didn't know anything about it, you know? The entire summer, it, it, people were dancing on the track. And I was at the swimming pool thinking, my life is shit, nothing is happening. <laughs> 
I like the the story of your early music career is you just not knowing what's going on with the. Like, yeah, it, it was it was always like that. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know what's going on, and then and then you learn from someone. It's on a playlist somewhere, or, or yeah, it's, it's the beauty of that time. Let's put it like this. Yes, it, it has downwards. If you look at it, it's that you have three months depression after releasing the record, where <laughs> where you have no news from it, and we thought, okay, this record doesn't work. And then I was like, I told you this record wouldn't work blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> we should have released something else and uh yeah and, uh, yeah that's awesome um well look i want to move forward in time a bit here because mm-hmm. i wanted to listen to the song night walk which i think is like 2017 so mm-hmm. we're sort of skipping over some stuff but uh <laughs> let's listen to that and then maybe we'll chat a bit about uh, the more recent stuff so this is a uh, night walk by lifelike
And that was Nightwalk by Lifelike. And I'm here with Lifelike right now, Laurent, talking about his uh, early collaborations and Chris Menace. And, uh, but we're in the future now, so that was Nightwalk we just listened to. And uh, the next year you did Miami Nice. Yeah, well, Miami Nice was especially released for New Retrowave, yeah. which was for me the biggest synthwave record label. But another story that you want to hear that you're going to laugh about is that I didn't know anything about Synthwave unless I go, one day I'm invited to DJ in Paris somewhere in a place where another artist, Tommy86, was playing. Mm -hmm. And I knew Tommy86 because we took a remix of him for a release I had myself on my record label with popular computer called his Badding Getting High or Getting High, whatever that was the name. <laughs> and so I go to this party and this guy, he, he, he tells me, oh, but you know that you're very popular in the synthwave scene. And I'm like, what is synthwave? <laughs> Because I didn't know about that. You see, <laughs> I love it. your life is awesome. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sitting there with my drink, and I have these two guys. One, one, one of the guys is from a, a synthwave record label somewhere in France, and a guy came from Sweden, Robert Parker. That's mm -hmm. his name in, yep. in, in, in the scene. And he made all the way from Sweden to Paris by himself on his own cost just to meet me and give me, give me his album. And I looked at his album and I said, oh, this is amazing. And the other guy says to me, oh, but this is like the Synthwave guy. I'm like, the what? <laughs> what is Synthwave? <laughs> so there I learned suddenly that there was an entire scene on YouTube and, and mostly on streaming of artists doing this complete 80s stuff. I knew there were some people doing that before. Like I, I remember some artist called Miami 84 or something like that. Yeah. But I didn't know that there was like hundreds and hundreds of artists doing this. Honestly, I didn't know about that. So I went on YouTube the next day and I saw there was hundreds of them. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> but does it make sense to you? Like when you hear the music that you release, do you hear like a, a line that goes to Synthwave? Like, do you understand why people were inspired this way? Yes, I, I understand. Because what happens is that we, me, Alain and, and Chris, we were all into some house music, but we were not able to do properly this house music music like with the rules that they had like Daft Punk had this way of doing house music which was more classic way with funky stuff and black male vocalists and our influence are more pop music although I love black soul music and everything but it's more like melting pot of everything which was more the case of this the old guys from the scene like Daft Punk or Cassius they were totally into this house stuff so that's probably the difference why we have made this sound different because to get an identity you had to put something else in the sound so we took this funky bass line but we used another influence from the pop music in there and that's probably why the sound is different and that's why it led to this maybe synthwave later or it inspired them because we were more into uh, that um, Alan he released this track called Rubicon I don't know how you say it in English and this track didn't work at all it was a huge business failure the track didn't work and the music company spent a fortune on it unfortunately it didn't work we don't know why but probably because he was too much in advance compared to the sound at that time the track was totally 80s it was 140 bpm which is like unplayable for a dj you know it's too fast so he couldn't get really played by djs and he couldn't really fit into the house stuff but people loved it so i would say that then 
inspired by that, when we did Discopolis, we also tried to do this French classic, but we didn't manage. So it gave this hybrid, weird synth stuff with a little bit of disco. And then after when I did the track So Electric, I tried to copy uh, Rubicon from Alain, but I didn't manage because... <laughs> I didn't manage to get the same sound. I wanted to have this sound, this 80s stuff, but I didn't manage to get it. So I, I got another type of stuff. But I used the trick of the bass line, the double bass line, the stuff that they use. Everybody uses that now in synthwave, the bass line that goes like... Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then from there, the record kind of worked quite well. And it even I even had Eric Pritz. I don't know if you remember this guy, Eric Pritz, this Swedish producer that was number one in UK with the track called Call On Me in the early 2000, 2004. Great video. Yeah, he wanted to sign the record and because at that time we were like so fucking stupid, we saw the scenes, it's very important we keep the French music scene like closed because we didn't want, we would lose our originality if someone would copy this stuff you know it's at that time it's such it's so weird when I think about it now yeah. <laughs> like we didn't want them to copy our sound yeah, so yeah, when yeah. we heard a call on me the sound of the record was huge and we were looking at each other and we were like oh my god how did he get such a huge sound because at the time it was very complicated to, to have a huge sound mm -hmm. produced at home and so I got suddenly a phone call from, from Eric Pritz manager who said yeah, yeah, Eric wants to sign it on Mouse Records or something like that I don't remember I don't remember well anyway and then I, I, I'm like I played the crowd I said oh really he wants to sign them well it's going to cost him a lot of money yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I keep continuing raising the advance to a point where he couldn't pay it <laughs> <laughs> no we cannot pay so much advance it's an independent release I don't care I want that much money blah, blah, blah. so he, he dropped the case and actually after I got to release it on a played against Sam we didn't have that much money <laughs> and yeah. we couldn't make it that big and that's one of the errors I made in my career I should have signed with Eric Pritz at that time I, I recognize now 20 years too late that I should have done it because the record would have worked quite well with him I even had the pretension that he said to me I want to do a remix of it I say no I don't want anybody to remix it <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, seriously, when I think about it. Uh, now, which release are you talking about right now of yours? Now we're talking about So Electric. So Electric, basically. okay, okay. Yeah, So Electric was when I sent a demo to some record label because I didn't, I, I sent it to Alain on Vulture. He said, oh, it's too specific. I don't think I want to release it. So I sent it to some other people. And then someone around Eric Pritz's friends heard that I'm releasing this uh, I'm about to release a new record because Discopolis was very short in time so we we kind of know each other you know mm -hmm. and his uh, record label manager called me and then I got Eric on the phone and I was like of course I was like uh, my ego was super boosted because suddenly everybody wanted to have the record <laughs> so I thought I could I could ask any price you know I was like okay I'm gonna ask a fortune yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because at that time they would pay advance and everything so I thought okay I'm gonna ask for a huge advance now you're gonna pay blah, blah, blah. and of course he wouldn't pay what I asked for because my my, my request was like impossible <laughs> I think I asked for 10,000 euro advance which is like nobody's gonna pay that for a single on an indie record label yeah 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 and also I, I pissed him off because I said I don't want any remix yeah. and he was like but why? And then I said, because I think my track doesn't need any remix. Can you imagine the ego 
Oh my god. The ego I had up. So. Well, speaking of labels, do you still have your label? Like you had a label, right? Yes, yes, of course. I have all the record labels. Everything is out there and the structure is there and the back catalog is running and it's making a little bit of money. And I had I had other subdivision that I launched a techno science because I had a side project called Pacific State with a friend of mine, which was like techno, more like early nineties techno. We made one or two releases on this uh, label and then I had a, a house science that I never used which is also uh, some kind of di- division. And then I had another division that we wanted to set up with a friend called Synth Electric. And that was a Synthwave record label, but we never set it up the record label actually. Because actually the problem is that the economy around Synthwave is too small in terms of profits. And uh, taking the risk to invest 10,000 euro into a record label now, I'm not sure we would recoup. And also the fact that we saw that new Retrowave has such a big fan base it's almost impossible to reach a fan base like that those days. Like 500,000 fans on, on YouTube, you would have to work three years a person and lose a lot of money in order to promote a new record record label like Synthwave record label. You yeah. Know, you have to go, you have to meet the people, you have to... It was too much effort compared to the what we would get out of it. Uh, honestly, then in Synthwave, it's a little bit like in Hard Rock. I'm going to explain what, what I mean. Uh, when I say that, <laughs> it has nothing to do with the hard rock music, of course. But the people who are in there who are fans of this music, they're very committed to the bands and they're very committed to the artists. And when I see, when I look at Yota's release and how she gets reaction from fans and how she gets love from the fans to her music, I have nothing to say bad about this music movement definitely not otherwise i wouldn't have had the idea to set up um, a record label but uh, i think they they having hard times to make it uh, financially viable and that's the problem with this for example um, new retrowave we have talked to them many times and they are not making enough effort in terms of promotion because i had they have offered me to release a lot of music there but when you when you have a background like me because of what i did in the past and how i conceive of music and the business and blah 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 for me it's very difficult to give away an album like this to a label who is only going to stream and generate i don't know like 2000 euro a year i'm saying something like that right yeah. it's very difficult to be on a label who has so many releases and don't promote them properly I think they have a good image. I like the guys there, but I think they don't promote enough records. And for me, not having a record promoted, it's it's not possible. Right. The minimum is that that they put a little bit of money in the promotion and not just a post on uh, their socials. That's good. If you uh, start a project like Yota or like other artists, it's a very good launch base. For me, New Retrowave is like an addendum. I, I can release a record there because it's good and it meets new fans and, and, and voila. But it's not enough to generate, for example, a tour. You cannot tour out of that. I know uh, other artists like uh, Robert Parker. I know him and I know for them it's very difficult to tour, but he has a job. He has, he has a job. He makes money with his job. He doesn't need to make money with that. Yes. But the scene has not developed. Unfortunately, it has not developed at all. Uh, it stayed like it was so that's why I compare it a little bit to hard rock in hard rock it's a little bit the same they had that time of glory and now it's a scene like it works by itself some people are making a little bit of money and they're touring their concerts blah 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 yeah I agree with that and then like within the community you have to contend with like the synthwave fans who want the scene to spread out and get bigger and Mm -hmm. then there's fans who actually like that it's like this little exclusive club but then ultimately you know that can be restrictive on the musicians right so yeah, yeah, yeah. 
totally. But look, we've been talking for a long time, so we can wind things down. We'll <laughs> listen to one more track. You know, we've been talking so much about the early days, so let's listen to another older one. I don't even know where I stumbled upon this one, but it's a fun track from uh, 2005. It's called Adventure by Lifelike.
And that was Adventure by Lifelike. And I've been chatting with Lifelike Laurent, and I guess we're uh, we're getting real about the viability of synthwave music and the state of the scene. And, you know, I, like, I think about this all the time because I love mm-hmm. the music that comes out of this scene, but I mostly just love retro synth sounds. I don't care about the rules or the cliches, but, like, obviously there's something special about these types of sounds because you'll see, you know, popular, famous artists incorporate the synthwave sound into their music. And then people love the songs, but it doesn't necessarily make the audience like go to synthwave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. I agree with you. Pop music gets to evolve and change yes, and yes. grab from different genres and this year the popular songs are this tempo and this year they're using this weird sampling technique or this new tool and where synthwave sort of stays the same mm-hmm. and that also I guess can affect its overall because how do you how do you attract more people if you don't grow you know yeah yeah that's uh, yeah it's one of the problem and also the fact that the all the image around it stays too much into uh, 80s cliche it's always the same mm-hmm. the sunset all the uh, back to the future stuff yeah and the the jeans the mallet the blah 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 so it's funny once but 20,000 times yeah. it tires you <laughs> mm-hmm. you know what I mean it's like if you have a disco concept uh, okay you do three records where you look like a disco singer but after everybody's tired of you yeah yeah yes <laughs> it's a normal feeling about uh, something with like too repetitive and also I think often when I saw the present when they organize festivals or things they don't pick up the right artists in the festivals you have people in the lineup of the festival who are not in- really interesting when you can where you can see it, some of them are much more famous and they don't go into those festivals it's like a movement that I don't think will will become commercial at some point I think it will stay like that and I think if you want to make a career in the music industry you can be at some point in there but you have to step out of it and maybe do some pop songs a little more yes but you you can't stay in there forever because you're going to become a cliche of yourself. Like, you know, you, you cannot produce uh, 60,000 tracks with the bass line. That bah, 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 well, some people know, do. Some points. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Unfortunately, <laughs> they have to stop. <laughs> it's like a virus. Yeah. The- <laughs> it's the COVID of Synthwave. It's like a Synthwave COVID. Some people... Yeah. <laughs> synthwave isn't like my ideology or anything, right? So, like, I just like music that I like. Some people are passionate to the point where they get upset if people make fun of it or whatever. Like, they, they take it mm-hmm. so seriously. For me, I just love the music. I love it. It's, it's very evocative. But I don't mind when artists try new things. Mm-hmm. I, I like when they experiment. Of course, of course. Even if I don't like it, I still appreciate... Because that shows me, like, the real artistry. Because when, when you talk about the synthwave cliches... You know, there's people now who are making music who are inspired by, like, the early years of Synthwave. Mm -hmm. And so it's like this weird loop where the band names sound the same. Like, every time an artist comes out, they're just, they're whatever, 82, fucking laser Mm -hmm. neon, fucking (laughs) 84, right? And because the Synthwave sound is really specific, Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have, like, that crossover audience that even, you know, dark synth music has. Like, those Mm -hmm. artists get Synthwave fans but they also can appeal to like metalheads and like a goth crowd 
Loud and people who like industrial music, mm-hmm. but like the hardcore fan of synthwave is a very specific thing, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's not really designed for dancing either. So like you can have like a club that has synthwave in the background, but it's more just for like setting a mood, and it like it sets a cool mood. But yeah, well, you could have only uh, synthwave clubs. It could could be possible because you have us, you have fans that would come to the club, but you would need to have a promoter that is into it. And I, I'm not sure you can do it every day. You know, you cannot do this sound every day because you would have to feed the club every day. And I don't think everybody is, can, can come every day and listen to this music. Enough, there's not enough people to listen to it. Because when, when there was these gigs in Paris, you could see there is a, a base of people coming, but it's not enough to fill out the big clubs every weekend. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. Not popular enough. There needs to be another hook. There are some places I would go to in the city because I lived in Toronto and they would be like these arcade bars. Mm-hmm. And some of them have synthwave nights, but a lot of people are there for the arcade bar part. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, like they're there to play video games and drink, and there just happens to be synthwave which does work with the aesthetic but mm-hmm. they're not there for the synth wave alone yeah 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 but that's that's right but anyway listen I'm listening I know you got places to be and we can say goodbye I know it's late over there and uh, well actually it's not late over there never mind <laughs> no no it's not it's like 8 like 8 but I, I got to go for dinner with friends so yes of course um, it was it was nice to talk to you is there anything we didn't talk about that you wanted to say before I hang up on you or oh, there's probably millions of things we can continue to yeah, talk yeah. we can do it in the next interview if you want <laughs> we can talk uh, next time about whatever you want. There's well, no I feel problem. bad because like a lot of the music choices I played were from like the early 2000s. I knew that would happen. No, it, it doesn't matter. I love those music. So you play whatever music you want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Choose the year you like and play it. <laughs> There's no problem. But yeah, but it was it was great talking to you and it was fun and I hope you have a, a lovely dinner and Thank you and you too. Maybe one of these days we'll we'll have you back on and we'll try and work our way through the the 2010s or whatever. <laughs> something yeah sure we should we should maybe the 20s 30s soon yes yeah (laughs) anyways man well you take care you too and yeah we'll talk soon talk soon andy thank you bye-bye all right, and that was my conversation with Lifelike. I hope you enjoyed that. Maybe we'll have him back on the show sometime and cover the uh, <laughs> latter half of his uh, music career. We did focus quite a bit on the old stuff. But hey, man, you know, whenever I have listeners say, like, play some Lifelike, they're always recommending these tracks that they loved from the early days. So it's nice to get a chance to showcase those and talk about them. And that is all I know. So tune in next time to Beyond Synth. It's the best synthwave chat show there is. If you like the show, consider supporting on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Beyond Synth. And speaking of Patreon, how about a quick thank you to some of my $25 cool people like A Star Apart, Ken Giroux, Restless Nights, and Waylon Kasky Geospatial. Hey, we heard from a lot of those people on the uh, call-in shows. So that's cool. From last season. Okay, I'm out of here. Have a lovely week and keep on listening to Beyond Synth. It's the best synth wave chat show there is. Synth Radio is produced by Andy Last. Check the show notes for more information on the musicians featured on the show. Consider supporting Beyond Synth at patreon.com slash beyond synth. Thanks for listening. Beyond Synth.